0: All right. All right, Romans chapter 8, just have that at least ready to go, I don't know how much we'll reference it, it just depends. Uh, this Sunday is one of those Sundays where we both, in both situations, we we technically needed to finish the messages, but we didn't, so we just left with very little to, to finish. Now, I always say that, and then by the time I'm done, well, then it's another week, and then we have, a, uh, because every time I think there's only a little bit to finish, it turns into more. But we only have, so today is all going to be about finishing everything, and hopefully we can accomplish that. So we've been in Romans chapter 8 now for a very long time, right? A very long time. And we've been looking at how many words in Romans chapter 8? Six words. Well, seven, but six found in the text. What are those six words? Oh, well, look at Romans chapter 8. It's open book. Okay. It's open book. I'll let you look. Romans chapter 8. What was the first word we looked at? Right. Does everybody agree? All right. for Foreknowledge, right? The first thing we looked at was foreknowledge. Next? Predestination. Third? Called. Fourth? Justified. Fifth? Glorified. Next? Elect or election. Those are the six words. We worked through all of those six words, yes? We looked at them and understanding all the controversy, but by the time, once we got into election, then what kind of We we got ready to go to the next word, and the next word it's not found in the text, but the concept we believe is in Romans is the doctrine of reprobation, which is very. If election isn't controversial, reprobation will definitely cause some major problems and (laughs) arguments and debates, and it's been debated throughout church history. Uh, Simply put, what is the doctrine of reprobation? Simply put. God's sovereign, sovereign decision before creation to pass over some for salvation. All right, that's simple, that, that, to simplify it, all right? Now, I have not put forth any really major argument for or against the doctrine, but to at least let you understand that the doctrine is out there. And basically, what does it basically come down to? Why is someone saved and why is another person saved? Not saved. And you basically have two theories. What are the theories? What are the two theories when it explains why one person is saved and another person is not saved? There's basically only two theories throughout church history that's been presented. Either it's us or it's God. Right? Okay, right? In other words, well, you... You were either smarter, you caught on, you realized it, and you figured it out, and you said, I want to be saved, and another person either wasn't as smart, didn't catch on, and decided they weren't saved. In other words, it's either all because of a person's decision or ability to figure something out, or it re- rests with whom? God. Some people don't like it to be rest on God because they feel that makes God what? Unloving, mean, cruel, unjust, that's a good word. They, they don't like that. So they, in a sense, they want to get God off the hook. But if you get God off the hook, then that makes salvation a work of whom? Well, at least, that part, we're at, at least we're involved in it, right? In other words, some will say, well, God did his part, but I have to do my part. But if I have to do my part, well, then that makes salvation a part of a work of us, which is problematic, okay? And we've talked about monergism. Versus synergism and all of that. Okay, so as we get into reprobation, though, we realize that opened up a different door. And what door was that? The order of God's decrees or God's decrees, right? And so we started talking about that. Now, if you remember, how did we start our study of Romans 8 before we got to the controversial section about those six words? There was something we studied before that that i said if we if we if we study this the six words will not be controversial god's providence okay very good so i want you to write down god's decrees god's providence just have those two concepts down all right i'm going to read from a systematic theology here all right listen carefully the decrees of god are the eternal plans of god Whereby, before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. Everybody got that down for decrees? The decrees of God are what? God's eternal plans. Whereby, before what? The creation, he determined to bring about everything that happens. Now, not everyone likes that definition, do they? Right? Why do people not like that definition? I mean, j- just be honest. Why would you possibly not like that definition? Okay, we're not in control. That's good. I think, the, I think the word that people don't like there is that he brings about everything that happens. And if he brings about everything that happens, that includes what? Horrible things that happen and we don't like that. Alright? So some some try to get God off the hook again. They think that I've got to try to I gotta to try to make God look good. But remember, no matter what you do, everyone is stuck with the same problem. It, this is very important. If you sit in any philosophy class in any university this, this subject is going to come up and sometimes uh, young people who spent their lives in church going to pizza parties instead of learning anything significant don't know how to handle this and then all of a sudden their faith comes crumbling down around them. Right, this is very important. The minute you introduce a God and you say God has the following attributes, all-knowing and all-powerful and eternal, you just ran into a major philosophical problem. Right? Does everybody understand the philosophical problem that presents? Here's a God who's all powerful, all knowing, and eternal. Okay? Then the professor just says, okay, he writes that on the whiteboard. God, all powerful, and and everybody will be, everyone likes that concept, right? An all powerful God who's all knowing and eternal. That gives you some sense of comfort, some sense that there's something beyond us, right? And everybody says, Amen to that. Then the prof- and so if the professor gets everybody going, yeah, I believe that, and gets all the Christian students to go, well, amen, amen. And then he just walks over on the other side of the board and he starts write, writing down words like rape, murder, starvation, famine, disease, war. Right? And just, just writes down. And if that doesn't work, he can just bring in video of horrible atrocities committed throughout history. right? And then he looks to the little Christian kid and goes, so where is your all-powerful, eternal God? So then the Christian kid's like, oh. and they decide, well, maybe God doesn't exist, and then he goes home to the Christian parent and say, I've got problems, and then the, the parent's like, well, I don't know what to say because we sent you to all the pizza parties. How come you're having problems? Okay, Why didn't you figure it out? Because these are issues they should have been addressed where? In the church, not in the philosophy class. But in church, we're not supposed to bring up this problem. We're supposed to just act like there's no issue. It's all simple. It's not simple. It's not easy. So you can try to play games with God's decree and rewrite it and say, okay, well, God didn't decree this and God didn't decree that. Listen, if he created everything, knowing everything that was going to happen, I don't care how you word it, he decreed it. Because he knew it was going to happen, right? And if he didn't want it to happen, he's all powerful. He could have stopped it. Do you, do you ever see God intervene in the Bible to stop things from happening? Okay, okay, okay. Right. It didn't take very long, did it, right? Okay. Did, it, did he get, in a sense, was he not happy with the way the world was going in Genesis 6? What did he do? Is that not intervening in it? Was he not happy with him building a tower? Did he intervene? Did he stop it? Did he intervene and stop Adam and Eve? Did he intervene and stop David? Did he stop Solomon from all of his issues? Did he stop Sarai from engaging in physical relations with them? Yeah, he stepped. So, isn't it weird how that works? Do you like? Do you does, do you have an easy answer for that? No. So, but the point is, no matter what you do here, everyone gets so upset and they want to argue about using terms like Calvinist or Arminian, and everybody gets upset. Look, everyone has the same problem. So I don't understand why churches divide over this stuff. As long as you believe that there is a God and he's all-powerful and all-knowing, you've got a problem. Because God knew what was going to happen, created it knowing what was going to happen. Yes? Therefore, beyond my ability to understand and beyond your ability to understand, God has a plan for it and that plan is ultimately for what? His glory. Now we don't like that. Because we want it to be about what? Our glory. We want it to be about us. And a modern day Christianity has so made it about us that when it stops being about us, we get discouraged and disillusioned and say, "Well, Christianity is not for me," because we think everything is supposed to be about us. And you catch on really quick. It's not. I wish it was. But it isn't. And think, if you think about it, even our salvation is ultimately for what purpose? His glory. I like to think it's about me. And this is a problem. So I just want to make sure you understand when we get to these decrees... That, that definition, we can write it down. Like sitting in a church, we can write down that definition and it sounds wonderful and great. And again, we can read it again. The decrees of God are his eternal plans, whereby before what? Creation, he determined to bring about everything that happens. That is easy to write down sitting in a pew. It's very difficult to accept that when you see the problems happening in the world. But that's where theology and reality have to meet. Theological principles are not to be left in some theoretical classroom. They have to be understood in the reality of everyday life. And sometimes that's hard for us to grasp. I wish it was simple, but it's not. All right, so that's the decrees of God. Now listen. Continue. Let's continue to listen here. Very important. This doctrine is similar to the doctrine of, what was the other word I told you to write down? Providence. It's similar to that doctrine. But here we are thinking about God's decisions before. So when when we're thinking of God's decrees, we're thinking of, of his decisions before the world was created rather than his providential actions in time. Think of it this way. Providence is the outworking of the eternal decrees. If you think of it that way. Now, I know we could get, I'm I'm, I'm very much simplifying it, but think of it that way. So we have God's eternal decree, and then in Providence, He plays that out where? In real time. So Providence is the outworking of God's eternal decrees. When are the decrees made? Before creation and eternity. This is something that Sarah Dansler pointed out when we were talking about all of the orders of God's decrees and, and everybody sitting there making all of these arguments. You said, I think you said something like, well, in reality, it's kind of foolish because all of them are made way far back. So trying to put them in an order is, is but why do I, why, why all the arguments about the order of God's decrees? Why do you think that arose within the church? Because there, there's always an attempt to try to do what? To try to somehow get God off the hook for certain things. It's man's attempt to try to defend God. We don't need to defend him because we're just supposed to worship him, acknowledge him, and submit to him. We can't, we can't in many cases, defend what is beyond our comprehension to even really understand. Does that make sense? So it's always in a tip. So I just want to make sure we have at least that distinction. Now, we started talking about the, and we, there's a lot more here we could look into, but I just wanted to at least re- remind us of those things. So we started talking about the orders of God's decrees, right? And we're looking basically since the Protestant Reformation. That's pretty much where we're looking at, okay? And we've looked at four main views, or we've started looking at the main views. What's the first main view? There are many in order. All right, the Arminian order. And this is based on uh, the, the idea of Jacobus Arminius around 1609. And he arranged the orders and the, uh, the decrees in the following ways. Does everybody remember the, the, the order he gave? Number one, God's decree to create the world. All right. Number two, his foreknowledge of the fall. Please note what's so very specific to catch right there. He did not use the word Decree. For Jacob, Jacobus Arminius, God knew the fall was going to happen, but he did not decree the fall. Right? Which is interesting. Why is this even listed if it's not a decree? But, all right, we can get into a whole discussion. Now, why does he not want to decree the fall? I mean, look, if you don't believe, it, you should just try this as a test. Just, anyone you know who's a Christian, just ask them, did God decree the fall? You know how many of your friends will say No. A large number of them. Why? Because that, that seems to try to make God guilty of what? Somehow of sin, and which we would not say that he's guilty of sin, but we can't, we still, listen, even if you want to say he didn't decree it, the fact that he knew it was going to happen, and it happened, and he allowed it to happen, isn't that not in a roundabout way decreeing it? But this is just like, a, a to me, a, a foolish attempt to try to get God off the hook. Well, let's go through these again. So in the Arminian order, what's number one? To create. Number two? Foreknowledge of the fall. Number three? Decree to send the Son as Savior for those who repent, believe, and persevere. All right. Number four? His decree to provide means to enable repentance and faith. Right. Prevenient grace. Remember we talked about prevenient grace and a lot of you ever weren't familiar with the term. I don't have time to go back through all of it again. And number, six, or number five, for knowledge of the individuals who will repent and believe. And then number six, decree to save those who believe, do good works and persevere and to condemn those who do not. All right, so what's the, probably the most important thing from the in order to remember? Number two and number five are not actual decrees. This simply, according to Jacobus Arminius, is simply him foreknowing something. All right. So according to this, he did not decree. According to the Arminian order, what what are the two things he did not decree? The fall? Those who will repent and believe. He simply foreknew that. He did not decree it. All right. Does anybody understand that? Anybody repeat that order? I got no problem. I'll go through them one more time just in case. Number one, God's decree to create the world. Number two, God's foreknowledge of the fall. Number three, God's decree to send his son as savior for those who repent and believe. Number four, God's decree to provide means to enable repentance. Number five, God's foreknowledge of which individuals will repent. And number six, God's decree to save those who do believe and do good works and persevere and condemn those who do not. All right, now we're not going to go back through all of that. That's the Arminian order. What was the next order? The Emeraldian Order, the Emeraldian Order, Emeraldian—that is spelled A M Y, R A, L D, I A N. The Emeraldian Order, all right. Emeraldian Order. What about what year? They in 1600s. That's, that's a pretty good idea. Okay, <laughs> since they're all these are after the Reformation. Okay, About 1664. Okay? And what was the order of the Emeraldian order or the Emeraldianism order? All right. Yeah, the first, the first one was God's decree to create the world and all men. He decreed the fall. Okay, he decreed, he decreed to redeem all men by the crosswork of Christ. Now, what's, what's significant about that? All right, now this is very important. I don't want anyone to get confused here, all right? In Emeraldianism, the order of God's decrees supports what they refer to as a hypothetical universalism. What does that mean, a hypothetical universalism? Yeah, in theory, in a sense, he provides a way that everyone can be saved. So, hypothetically, everyone can, but in reality, doesn't. But it makes it sound better that he at least hypothetically wants to save everyone. You get the idea? Okay? Did you have a definition? So he he wanted to save everyone, but he knew they wouldn't. <laughs> well, then why? So you have God wanting to do something that He can't seem to accomplish. Do you see where this begins to cause a major problem? God wants to, but He can't do it. Well, if He wants to, wouldn't He be able to do it? Like the, this creates major problems, right? So, yeah, right. Then it calls into question His His power. So the, this, this remember the Emerald Dean was trying to do what? What was the Emerald Dean, The whole purpose here. Remember, it's a compromise between Arminianism and Calvinism, and it tried to get rid of the harsher points of Calvinism. That's what it was trying to do, remember? Okay. Whenever the church comes along and tries to get rid of the harsher aspects of something, we usually end up destroying the doctrine of God. That's typically what we do. All right, so let's go through these again, all right? The Emeraldian uh, order. Number one, God's decree to create the world and all men. Number two, God's decree that all men would fall. Number three, God's decree to redeem all men by the cross work of Christ. Number four, God's election of some fallen men to salvation and the reprobation of the others. And number five, God's decree to apply Christ's redemptive benefits to the elect. Right? The, the idea here, and remember we talked about this, Emeraldianism is called hypothetical universalism because it sees God's decreeing redemption for all prior to his decree to elect only some. The aim is to present God as a universalist and his saving desire while honoring the particularism of election and salvation by faith alone. And then we, we remember we realized all of the problems with it and we talked about all of that, okay? All right, so there's Emerald Deanism, all right? It's an attempt to try to make God a universalist without making God a universalist, all right? So Is that okay? Everybody got that? All right, now that brings us to the next one. Supralapsarian. Supralapsarian. You should just learn to say the word because it sounds cool. Supralapsarian, all right? supra-lapsarian. All right, here we go. Oh, there's a, a, lo- oh, there's a lot we could say about all this. We covered a lot of this. So I'm trying to figure out what, which to review and what to just move on, but I'm just going to move on. All right, here we go. The supra order arranges the decrees of God with a primary emphasis on God's will to glorify himself by the gracious salvation of the elect, and the just condemnation of the reprobate. God's predestination is therefore seen as prior to or above all other decrees, so that creation, fall, and redemption are subservient to the greater purpose. Now that immediately tells you this one's going to be different, okay? And all of the others, what is decreed first? Creation. That will not be the case, all right, in this particular order. And the reason why is what do they want to emphasize according to what I just read? They want to emphasize God glorifying himself by the gracious salvation of the elect and the condemnation of the reprobate. God's predestination is therefore seen as prior or above the decree of creation. All right, so, in this order, you already know what's number one then. Number one is God's decree to predestine the elect to eternal life with Christ as their head and to predestine the reprobate to damnation for their sins all to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to think about the, what that is saying. You've got to think this through. What happens when God's decree... Now, remember, just please make sure we understand this. This is simply trying to understand a logical order of how God decreed things. In reality, it all happened in eternity past. And trying to break this order down really is just something we're, we're trying to comprehend, maybe the incomprehensible. But by placing it in this order, what is the most important thing? What is this saying about God when it places the electing and reprobation before creation? What is this that's making a major statement? What is it saying by doing that? Okay. The purpose of creation was to play out his salvation and his reprobation. In other words, the purpose of creation ultimately is the playing out of the saving and and condemning of people. Yeah, it puts the idea of salvation before even creation. Does that make sense? So in other words, God already decreed, hey, I'm going to save some and and others are going to be condemned. And then I'm going to create the world in which that's going to take place. Where everyone else, it's almost like I'm going to create the world. Oh, man. But everyone's going to mess up. All right, now I need a plan to save them. This says no, no, no. God already knew exactly what was going to happen, and already had planned to save and condemn even before it was created. And places the emphasis on on salvation above creation. Creation is there to be the place where the salvation can take place. Well, all of these views emerge pre-Reformation. Or post-Reformation, I should say. That's where all of the... Now, when I say these... Uh, let me state it this way. All these ideas are formulated after the Reformation. These concepts have, are, look, these concepts have been bouncing around really in, in the entire history of anyone believing that there is a God. You're trying to understand, well, why would God do this? Yeah. It's, oh, it's just our attempt to try to understand God and how everything has worked out in real time trying to grasp it, trying to understand it. Remember, I've said it before. Where should all of your problems begin philosophically? Genesis one one. As soon as I read, in the beginning God created, I, I, and I know what comes next, I should be like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Stop, 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 stop. Don't say, it. just immediately, you want to just start screaming at the text, don't do it, because you know everything that's getting ready to happen. Well, because we know everything that's going to happen, and we know God is the one creating, then a basic logical assumption is he also knew what was going to happen. So then the question becomes, why? The fact that people can read Genesis and never stop to ask that question is mind-blowing to me and baffling to me. Because it's usually Christians who never ask the question, and it's atheistic philosophy teachers who will. Why can atheistic philosophy teachers read Genesis 1 and know that there's a question there and Christians don't see it? Is, I will never understand that. Every Christian should struggle with, wait a minute, what just happened? Don't do it, don't do it. And the decrees are at least trying to explain something about it. It's, that's, the, that's the attempt. Okay, so according to, and which view is this again? I just wanted you to get the privilege of saying the word. Okay. All right. All right. What comes first? Predestined to elect and to reprobate. All right. Make sure you understand that. This is almost kind of, well, we won't get into that whole subject, right? Number two, then he decrees to create the world. And then number three, he decrees to permit the fall of mankind. Now, again, please note even how that's worded. Yeah, he didn't decree it to happen. He decreed to permit it to happen. But again, if he created the world knowing it was going to happen, it's really weird to me to just try to reword it as he permitted it. Because, well, all right. But that's, I understand what they're attempting to do there. And then number four. Then God's decree to send his son and spirit to save the elect. All right. Now, what's the advantage of the superlapsarian view? It seems to honor scriptural language of God. All right, and I'll, I'll just read everything I have here. An advantage, the advantage of the superlapsarian view is that it fully honors the scriptural language of God predestining the elect apart from any condition or qualification. It also provides a unified cause-effect relationship to the decrees of God as a whole with each item finding its rationale and what precedes it. In particular, God's decree of the fall is explained and the antecedent decree of election and reprobation. All right? And now what's the, uh, what do the critics say of superlapsarianism? Okay, yeah, sorry. So the, the basic argument here is that by placing the decree of election before the decree of the fall, it presents God as choosing persons for eternal condemn, condemnation without the prior consideration of divine justice. All right? Does everybody see why people would get upset? The decree to condemn is before the fall. And they're saying that's not fair. All right? I can understand that argument, but I can also know that I can take my Bible and read and I know that God loved Jacob, hated Esau before they were born, before they did anything. Now, if God already, and again, this just goes with, if God knows that these people are going to do this, can he not condemn them prior to? Right. Right. I mean, I mean God, God's making these choices before someone does something, I think is, is I, I still think it supports the scriptural language to some level. All right. Now, we could go through all of the arguments about it and all of the people who've argued about it throughout uh, church history, but we won't go through everything there. All right, now there's supralapsarianism. Now we have one more. What's the next one? Infralapsarianism. Infralapsarianism. We have supralapsarianism, now infralapsarianism. Again, just walk around saying the words because you'll look really smart, okay? All right, now, infralapsarianism wants to try to somehow avoid some of those problems, right? So they're going to try to avoid some of these issues, right? So here's how they order it. You ready? Number one, what do you think the first one is? Yes, back to creation, right? God's decree to create the world for his glory, Number two, what do you think number two is? The fall. God's decree to permit the fall. Everyone's going to say to permit the fall. Everyone's going to go with the permission idea. Number three, what do you think number three is? Now it's going to be the decree to elect certain fallen people to salvation by grace in Christ and reprobate others to just condemnation. Yes, and then number four, you know what number four is to create a sin Christ and the spirit to save the elect all right everybody everybody got that all right now any any Questions about the differences in those? There's a lot more here I could read about this, and we could dig into it a little bit more. I could go through all the defenses of superlapsarianism uh, versus infralapsarianism, okay? We, we, could, we could break these down. I think the main thing I want you to see is this. This is very important here, all right? I think it's very important. Um. Between the infra superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, between these two and the differences and them trying to work out the differences, it's typically understood this that while their distinctions are worthy of debate, they are typically not seen as being a sufficient cause for, for division or undue strife. All right? In other words, if between a superlapsarian and infralapsarian, there should not be really much strife or disunity. Now, there should be disunity between anyone who's supralapsarian or infralapsarian with Arminian or the Emeraldian view. Those view, I believe, are outside Orthodox Christianity, and I, will, I would say Superlapsarian and infralapsarian are more Orthodox. Now, I'm not saying, listen... That someone who holds to an Arminian view or an Amrodean view is not saved. I'm just saying that it's outside of, I think, what would be biblical Christianity. Does that make sense? Because salvation is not determined on your theology completely, right? It is determined on what? Okay, everybody should know how we're saved. Faith Faith in Christ, right? So what theology is required for salvation? What, what theological truths are required for salvation? Now, I know we could pull up, the, uh, we could pull up some of the creeds, right? The uh, Athanasian creed would tell you a lot is required. But what would be the basics required for salvation? Okay. But obviously, you've got to believe there's a God. You've got to believe that God is the God of what? The Bible. can't just be any God, right? What else do you have to believe? Got to believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who came to die for sinners, right? You gotta obviously I gotta believe that I am a sinner, and I believe that my only hope is what? In Jesus Christ, right? Those are the basics. Now those are that's all theology. But what I'm saying we're not saved by our theology in the sense that every little, every little theological presupposition, every every little The theological truth has to be understood because that doesn't happen at the point of salvation, right? Sometimes we know very little at the point of salvation. Very little, okay? But there there are some things we have to know. Now, the early church would have argued differently if you pick up the Athanasian Creed. They were like, you got to understand a bunch of stuff in order to be saved. But I think biblically, the basic concept is I got to realize that I'm a sinner and that God has sent his son and that only in his son is there salvation and I am saved by placing my faith in him. And then we would add the word "alone," right? Does that make sense? Those are, those, so there is some theological knowledge that is required. When you get into the order of God's decrees, when you get into, you can't go around and say, well, you don't have this right, you don't have this right, you don't have this right, and then condemn, condemn, condemn. Right, yeah. Right, right. You can, yeah, you can say this. Someone has to have a theological understanding of the gospel. Right? Because that, uh, that encompasses all of that. Right? So at least you have to have that. Because if you, if you don't have that, then you, it, you... Like if you have the wrong Jesus, the wrong God, you know, there, there's... there's the, and, and, and Paul says that if, if you have the wrong gospel, you're a... What does he say? You're a curse, you're anathema. Right? That, that's very important. So at least that much must be understood. And sometimes, some evangelism uh, concepts have uh, abandoned some of that. But those are the decrees of God and the orders of God's decrees. Now, there's a lot more we could say about all of this. Please don't think you've walked away now as an expert. But you at least have a basic idea, all right? Now, let's go back to this, all right? We're going to go back and we're going to work on, we're going to circle back around. We started with reprobation and then we had to take a detour, We've looked at God's decrees. Now we're going to circle back to reprobation. All right. Now, the idea of reprobation is what? Again, what's the idea of God's rep- of reprobation? All right. Yes, it's God's decision to pass over some and not to save them. All right. This decision of God in eternity past is called reprobation. Reprobation is the sovereign decision of God, I'm going to say it again, before creation to pass over some persons deciding not to save them, punish them for their sins, and thereby to manifest his justice. Now, according to systematic one systematic theology, the doctrine of reprobation, are you ready for this? According to this systematic theology, is the most difficult of all the teachings of Scripture. For us to think about and to accept, because it deals with such horrible and eternal consequences for human beings made in the image of God. Does everybody agree with that or disagree with that? Okay, Do you think I agree, you think I disagree? Do I? I disagree. Right. Why do I disagree? Okay. <laughs> Just you. Okay. All right. All right. Why, why do you think I disagree? Yeah. Where, I think the most difficult thing to accept in all the Bible is Genesis 1.1. I don't know how many times I can say that. Because, again, as soon as I read, in the beginning God created, I'm like, no, that doesn't make any sense. If I didn't know anything about the world. Right? If I didn't know anything about the world, the only thing I thought about, I I thought the world was a Disney movie. Everything was wonderful and great, right? Everything was perfect. Then maybe I could read Genesis 1-1 and go, oh, okay. But I know that everything's not great. So that makes no sense to me. Wait a minute, why would God create a world where everything's going to be messed up? And how long has it been since he created the world? At this point, I think you can just give up on the idea and move on. Right? Okay. My problem starts in Genesis 1. Why do I want to constantly just bother you with that concept? Because if you realize the problem starts there, then when you get into these doctrines like election, predestination, reprobation, where everybody loses their mind and, you know, ah! and goes crazy, you can say, why are you going crazy in Romans 8? You should have been going crazy in Genesis 1. Why do you not realize that's where the problem started? And an all-knowing, powerful God created a world knowing everything was going to go horribly wrong and did nothing to stop it. they can't be saved when god created knowing they wouldn't be saved yeah, like i don't need i don't even need, repro- I don't even need reprobation for that, but, don't that no, but i i know that no i know that because I, when i read genesis 1 i've already i've already lived in this world right before i read genesis 1 do i know before you read genesis 1 did you know that not everyone was a christian did you know people died who weren't christians So before you read Genesis 1, you knew not everyone's going to be saved. So as soon as I read Genesis 1, I'm like, wait a minute. He's going to create a world in which people are going to die not being saved. Did he know it before he created the world? I don't need reprobation to create the problem. Now, reprobation may intensify the problem. It may make it a little bit more unpleasant but as, as the fact that I know God created a world knowing what was going to happen. In fact, it's not going to take me very long that I'm going to get even more confused, right? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, I'm like, okay, I don't know why you're creating everything because I know how bad it's going to be. And then I get to Genesis 3 and then I get really upset. Because who comes walking in? A serpent. And then when I find out that that serpent is who? Satan. And I know who created Satan. Why is he there? Did, did, did uh, Satan commit sin? What could God have done as soon as Satan fell? Destroy him. He doesn't destroy him. Where does he allow him to go? To the garden. Now, immediately right here, I start getting really nervous in Genesis 3 right if so if you don 't think Genesis one one is the problem, by the time you get to Genesis three, you should be losing your mind at the plot of this story, because they'll be like, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, you don 't have to let him in the garden. Wait a minute, you could have destroyed him. What are you doing? Which seems to imply, what is he doing, allowing this to occur, knowing what 's going to happen, that the minute they sin, death sentence is passed upon. All of creation. So, I mean, I got a million issues. With, I mean, and if that, look, if, if reprobation is, if way before I get to reprobation, I read a book called Job. I got a million problems there. I mean, I'm way, and, and that's way before I even get to Romans. And, and forget that, I've, I've got Sodom and Gomorrah, i got Genesis 6, I can go on and on, and i got story after story after story after story after story that's going to create all kinds of problems. I think my problem, by the time I get to reprobation, I'm kind of like, eh, okay, I'm good. I mean, what else are you going to throw at me? You know? In fact, to me, reprobation is kind of the logical progression of what starts in Genesis if you already knew it was going to happen and you let it all happen anyway, why wouldn't the reprobation of a sinner be a part of the plan? To me, by the time you get there, it's kind of like, eh, I'm pretty good to go. By the time I get to election, I'm, I'm pretty much set. It's just some weird thing that people get through Genesis without... Do, do you see people lose their mind in Genesis? No. Do you see uh, Sunday school classrooms descend into yelling and screaming uh, during Genesis? No. Romans? Chaos erupts, and I'm just always like, uh, did 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 we skip the first book? Did we skip the first book? I don't believe so. No. Probably infra. Probably. All right. So, but he they believe reprobation is what one of the most difficult most difficult doctrines. Okay. All right. Again, I think the problem begins where? Back in Genesis. Okay. Now, uh, they say the love that God gives us for our fellow human beings and the love that he commands us to have towards our neighbor causes us to recoil against this doctrine. And it is right that we feel such a dread in contemplating it. It is something that we should not want to believe and would not believe unless scripture clearly taught it. I can see that. But those same issues <laughs> arise in Genesis, right? Do you, you love people. Do you want to see people suffer? Genesis 6. How many people die? Why did they die? Because they're sinners. And where did sin arise? Genesis 3. Who set it all up? that sin would arise? <laughs> My problem is way, like, I, 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 it's, it starts way before all of this, way before all of this. In fact, look, if you love people, aren't you a little, are you a little bothered by Cain and Abel? Look, it's one thing. I know every teenager wants to blame mom and dad for everything. But I think in this particular case, Cain and Abel could be like, you messed up our entire lives. Right? I think it would be fair for Cain to go, hey, mom and dad, this is your fault. You're the reason I want to kill my brother. There would be some truth to that, yes? Hey, right? hey, mom, you really messed up my life. I think there would be a little, it'd be hard for her to go, now, son, I think you're being a little hard on mom. No, no. I think yeah, okay, you're right. She did she ate us out of house and home. Right, she, she, she messed us up completely. I think there'd be a little bit of truth to that, yes? So, I mean, that that's that's the way it works. So I agree that there's a, there's something that we want to recoil against this, but we should have already processed this before we get to Romans 8. That's what that's what just I just don't understand. What do I always say? Remember what Augustine said about reading? Our ability to read everything else is what determines our ability to read this. Because this is God's revelation in what kind of a form? Written form. How do you read a novel? Right? The way you read a novel is very, you're using the same principles. So when I turn to Genesis 1, knowing what's coming, that same principle would make me stop and go, whoa, wait a minute, I got some questions. But for some reason, we're, we, we read it, I can, how can I say this? Here We have a disease. And the disease is that we read the Bible like church people. It's like some church disease where we got to read it and we just think, there's certain things we're not supposed to say, there's certain problems we're not supposed to have. No, we're supposed to read it like a person who reads a book and knows how to interpret a book, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to have some interpretive problems all the way back in Genesis. So I just, I, I, I just kind of get tired of everyone acting like the problem begins here because it really starts earlier, all right? Now, I do agree with him this. Now, this is very important. And this is a very important principle. No matter how difficult something is when we, when we see it in Scripture... No matter how much we dislike it, no matter how much we hate it, no matter how much it bothers us, our job is to accept it if that is what is actually being taught. We are not to go to Scripture to make it say what we want it to say. Because is there things in Scripture you don't like? Are there things that I don't like? I mean, I, let's just be honest. Are there things in the Scripture that condemns you? If you don't know some, we'll talk after and I can find some that will help you out. There's plenty that condemn Me. Our job is to accept it, not to change it. Not to change it. All right? So I I, I do agree with that. All right? But are there scripture passages, this is the question asked, that speak of such a decision by God? Certainly there are some. Jude speaks of some persons who long ago were designated for what? See if you can find it. Look in Jude. Okay? Yeah, everybody go to the book of Jude. Does anybody know what scripture that's being referred to here? I hate when the systematic theologies don't give you the actual scripture reference. <laughs> but, all right, here we go. All right, I'm going to go to verse 3 for context. Beloved, when I gave diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you would earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What is significant about that verse? They were ordained to condemnation. Everybody see that? That's a pretty, I think that's pretty serious. All right. Moreover, Paul, um, we've already seen, speaks in the same way of Pharaoh. What What does Paul say in Romans 9? Go to Romans nine. We haven't got there yet, but we'll jump. We may have to stop with this one. All right, we'll go back to verse fourteen for context. Right, or go back to thirteen for context. What, what does he say in verse thirteen? We'll end with this because we won't have time to go any further. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. As soon as you read that, what do you say? That's fair. That's not right. And you know what? That's okay to say that. It's okay. Look, please don't. I know that you, you. sometimes we're so raised with a church way of thinking that we are afraid to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. It's okay to struggle. It's okay. Look, Christianity is not about just a, just, we've got to say all the right words and say all the right things, Christianity is where we are struggling and working with the, re- with the revelation that God has given us, and it's sometimes difficult for us to grasp and understand. It's okay to struggle. I mean, Peter, didn't Peter have all kinds of questions for Jesus constantly? Well, why are you doing this? What about this? What about this? Why, 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 why? The rest of the disciples always, ju- I think they just sent Peter to ask all the questions, but you know they had the exact same questions. Job when everything's going horribly wrong, did he have some very strong words to say? Did he ask God a whole bunch of questions? Did he get any answers? No. But did God condemn Job for his struggles and his questions? No. God, truth can handle your struggle and doubt. What do I always say? If you never question your faith, your faith is probably not worth having. A faith that truly grabs onto God is a faith that will struggle and doubt and have questions and have problems because we're trying to figure it out. It's this simplistic kind of faith where you're just supposed to never question anything. So when you read that, your immediate question is, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. And Paul understands that. What does he say in verse 14? What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. That's the question we're up. That's not right. He's like, "God, God forbid that, that we would think that." And then what does he go? What does he say? For he saith to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion." that wait, we don't like that, because what do we say? God will have mercy and compassion on everyone. Well, the, the previous verse or two verses before, he's already demonstrated he doesn't always have mercy and compassion on everyone. Because one he loved and the other one he hated before they were born. And have you read the story of Jacob and Esau? Yeah, Jacob's a great guy, isn't he? Jacob's just a wonderful person. Now, I, don't, I wish it wasn't that case. Just what, there's people who know you and probably wonder why God had mercy on you. Because they, from a human perspective, they may deserve the mercy and compassion more than you do. Amen? There's people who probably deserve God's mercy and compassion far more than I deserve it. But then we realize we get compassion and mercy not because we deserve it, but because God chose to give it. And I'll never understand why he chose to give it to me. And I'll never understand why he chose to give it to You. Amen? Verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth. Oh, wait, what does that just say? It's not of what? Will. Well, the King James says will. That goes against everything (laughs) everyone's ever been taught, right? No, it's my will, my will, my will, my will, my will no it's God's will it's not to to him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth whenever you read Exodus did you find yourself having some really major problems with the story I had problems with the story every time it said that God did what I'm like, wait a minute, why? Why are you hardening his heart? All you have to do is say, hey, Pharaoh, let him go. And Pharaoh's like, okay, because God controls everything, he just lets him go. Did anyone have to die? When you read the story of God coming in and killing the firstborn, does that not bother you a little bit? Because the firstborn didn't need to die. Because God could have let Pharaoh let the people go the very first time, He didn't didn't even need Moses to let the people. He could have had the people gone whenever he wanted to let them go. How long were they there? 400 years. Wait, it's 400 years. And then when Moses goes to him, yeah, no, 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 harden, harden, harden. Why do you keep hardening the hearts? Just let them all go. When all of them are, when, it's like some weird, it's so weird the way Christians think. Like, we're like, oh man. God really, he, he destroyed those the Egyptians. It's almost like we read it almost like we're watching a football game, right? And we're like, oh, the Egyptians are bad. Kill them. Yay, we celebrate. No, that, that's horrible. Those are human beings dying. They didn't have to die. See, way before I get to reprobation, I've already got a problem. God is hardening someone's heart that leads to their destruction, not just their destruction, the firstborn, their destruction. The entire army of Egypt is drowned. And it all takes place because God is doing what? Hardening their heart. Yes? For the scripture saith, I I know we're we're running out of time. Pharaoh, even for the same purpose, have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will, he does what? Hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power, power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel and another vessel? There's no easy way to read those words. But we, we have seen that play out where? Throughout the whole Bible. You don't need... The, this just tells you what you should have already discovered in just reading from Genesis to... By the time you get to Romans, you, you should, you're almost kind of prepared for it, right? You're kind of like, okay... I know where this is going. Have you ever watched a movie and You're like, okay, I know what the I know what the big swerve's. Got. I know what it's going to be. I know I know what's happening because in some cases they give so much away that you kind of know. Now sometimes they keep you in the dark. Well, there's nothing keeping you in the dark. By the time you get to this, you're like, well, he's he's been destroying a lot of people, right? In fact, do we see it even with the nations. He he brought nations up to do what. Inflict punishment on Israel. And then what did he do to the very nations that he used to inflict uh, punishment? Judge. To judge them. Even though he raised them up for that very purpose. All of this happens way before you get to Romans. Right. Even though I raised you up to do it, because you did it, we're going to judge. Just like he used Judas, yet judged. Judas, it's just, that's the way it works. It's not easy. It's not an easy concept, but it is there. So I want you to see the reprobation starts showing up. Where does it show up clearly? I think it shows up earlier on, but it's articulated in Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through 21. All right, we'll have to stop there. All right, any questions before people come walking in for the next hour? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We did not provide any answers this morning. We just provided very difficult concepts. Concepts that make people very uncomfortable. But these are concepts that arise from your word and we can either ignore them, we can try to rewrite them, we can try to pretend that they're not there, but it does not change the, the reality of what your word gives us. And our job is to try to understand it, submit to it, follow it, And be humbled by it. And I pray that we would all be humbled by the fact that you have shown us mercy when no one in this room deserves it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.